it's weird because it's like you would think when you're making big things, you can't be intuitive. Right. But actually... You can be. You can be. Because once you get your hands on that stuff and it starts becoming a thing, it's going to start making its own decisions. Welcome to Magic Praxis, a podcast in which artists talk to artists in their studios. In this episode, we interview artist Rachel Owens in her Brooklyn studio. I'm Clarity Haynes, and this is Kate Hawes. Rachel Owens is a sculptor whose work is often socially engaged. She works with materials as varied as crushed glass, resin, and steel Humvee truck bodies. In our visit to her Brownsville studio, she discusses the logistics of creating large-scale public sculptures, the use of sound in her work, and how meaning is intricately tied to place. We're sitting in a studio that you built out of scaffolding, uh, metal... It's like a wooden box. It's pallet, like a small wooden box storage. in a large warehouse yeah, yeah. That, that doesn't even really have real walls. It's a space carved out of a big industrial... Yeah. In a way, when I first moved to New York, I lived in this big loft in Greenpoint with a bunch of people, and that was not nearly... I mean, that was... Like, we lived there, so it was not like this... Um, but when I moved into this, it felt a little bit like the, those days. So these are made of multicolored crushed glass cast in resin, am yeah. I right? Yeah. And it's a platform on top of a small mm-hmm. scaffold. And you started this sometime after the devastating election <laughs> results, right? Uh, yes. <laughs> when, when, was, when was the first time you, you had this? It's, it's basically a performance that people stand on top of it. Right. And this project is called Life on the Other Side of a Cracked Glass Ceiling. And in this case, it's a structure. The scaffolding I love because scaffolding is a thing that is for re- repair, right? Mm-hmm. It's what you use when you want to repair something or you want to build something new. Um, so the scaffolding is, you know, as much right, kind of part right, of the content right. as this idea of standing on this broken glass. Uh, and, and it's it's weird. Like, I actually prefer the idea of it being in a parking lot or a lobby uh-huh. rather than in, like, a gallery. Like, not make it pristine because it's programmed. So in each location, different speakers or performers or activists you program the top of it and so all of it happens up on the top oh, so it's um, really like a stage it's like, like a stage but it's also a sculpture, a sculpture that, because right. the viewers go up there too this is like one of the first times that I've really been aggressive about like mm-hmm. okay I'm gonna book this like I'm right, gonna make right. this happen mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. is the project yeah this is what I want to do yeah. right and this is where I want to do it and I'm just gonna sell it as opposed to you know, waiting around and posting on Instagram mm-hmm. for some curator to be like, oh, Rachel, could I have a studio visit? Like, <laughs> right. you know, which it's a is passive kind of approach. The, yeah, mm-hmm. which like, is like, wait for them think, to find you. Right. Yeah, but I think that's what, that's how, like, we're programmed to kind of, right. or I shouldn't say we, I keep it in the eye. I, that's kind of always how I approached yeah. it. Uh-huh. And now it's like, yeah, this is crazy. Yeah. I have a network. Right, exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. We have to be brave. Yeah. You know, it's like, because you're, const- you're just constantly heading into the abyss. But anyway, I mean, this thing, when I did it at Central Park, it was great. Um, Can you I tell had, us about that? Yeah. So I had 
four different performances. Um, so Mira Shore came and she kind of did a teach-in and she was talking about the Me Too, but just hashtag movements in general around feminism. Actually, it's really interesting because all that has proceeded so quickly. At that point, which was in October, the Weinstein thing, I don't think had happened. Oh, yeah. The mass firings uh, hadn't started happening. Uh-huh. So, so the conversation kind of was about how oh, do these things really do anything? Like, they make us aware, um, but does it actually move society like forward? Would she say something different now? I don't know. Maybe. Mm. Maybe. Um, and then our young artist Chris Giles had two performers who do this performance with him that's called Who. All three of them are African-American, and um, it's just this amazing performance where they're just ripping pieces of paper off that have phrases. I, we saw actually a video of it. Yeah, it says... It's like, uh, whose body matters? Mm. I mean, it's intense. It's an yeah, amazing yeah. performance, and that no one speaks, and they're just mm-hmm, ripping mm-hmm. these things off, and between the three of them, it forms this amazing sentence. Um, and then two other artists made a kind of like fake wellness workshop that was really addressing sort of whiteness and who gets to be healthy and sort Mm -hmm. of corporatization of Mm -hmm. all of that. Um, And then another performance by Kelsey Broad, who pretended to be Ivanka Trump, apologizing for her white feminism. Um, Mm. And she mined a lot from a bell hooks um, speech about that. So, um, and, and we saw the video. She she looked kind of like Ivanka yeah, Trump. Yeah, well, she, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that's something yeah. she's been having to kind of deal with, is right. like being this, mm. you know, thin, blonde, mm-hmm. you know, all that stuff. So it was amazing. And then when the performances weren't happening, people were invited to come and stand on it. And even that, it's like you forget, like, people are so trained, like, I can't touch it. And when you say, mm-hmm. no, you can get on it. <laughs> They're like, really? It won't break? Right. I'm like, I promise it won't break. I was like, please don't break. <laughs> <laughs> and so all these people climbed up on it, and, um, which was nice. Yeah. So you'll yeah. have different performers in different locations, which is interesting. Instead of taking the same group no, yeah, on no, the road, you're like it should be soliciting spe- new people in different places. Yeah, it should be specific to each place because each, yeah. each place has their own movement and their own people and and their own and that's the way it can be effective right like if you bring in a bunch of people from new york (laughs) and you're in can i mean i'm from kansas city it's like (sighs) yeah yeah because i do want it to be actually a transformational thing when people say social practice art I'm just like, well, isn't all art participatory and about the experience? But, like, actually, I'll ask you, because I'm sure this is something that you have opinions about and mm-hmm. think about. What do you think of the term social practice art, and do you think it applies to your work? Well, it's weird, because my work, I think, spans so many different things that sometimes there is a social element. I would never call myself a social okay. practice artist, though. Because I make so much different stuff and I'm so rooted in making. But I do really love including that aspect when it's the right time to include that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And there is this, like, bandwagon right now. Right. Like, and, like, piece by piece. Like, not every piece is right. going to have that function right. in the world. Exactly. But some will. But some and will. And, you yeah. could call it what I you mean, want. I mean, I also have done, like, pedagogical performative pieces where 
I go somewhere and do a bunch of workshops, and then there's like a performance, and there's nothing is made. Mm-hmm. So you seem like you are almost in equal parts an activist mm-hmm. and an artist. And I was wondering about the genesis of, of kind of who you are today in the mm. sense of, you know, what kind of formative experiences did you have? Well, uh, I mean, actually, it's funny. I was just home at my mom's house over the holidays and I found my yearbook. And <laughs> I wish I had like it. Like high school yearbook? show it to you. It's insane. Um, I started the Amnesty International chapter at my high school and there's all these pictures of me like (laughs) (laughs) you're pointing oh my god and having conversations like it was like whoa like it kind of freaked me out. You were kind of a serious kid. (laughs) Well but I was also kind of goofy. I don't know. I mean my dad lived in South Africa um, and worked for Desmond Tutu and my parents were divorced, but I went and stayed with him and my stepmom on a couple of different occasions when I was young. So did you that meet Desmond a, Tutu? Yeah. Wow. What so an that honor. was a really formative experience, I think. But I was always very, you know, my mom's a psychologist, and so I was always very. I don't know. I think I, I was just sort of like that. Was there like a sense of an obviously there was a sense of injustice Mm -hmm. now that I think about it maybe also growing up basically with a single mom so my parents got divorced when I was very young and you know my mom is she's like fierce she went back to graduate school and it was just me and her to get her PhD so there was like this kind of fierceness from that and then seeing what my dad was doing and visiting that place at that time was pretty mm-hmm. what um, year was intense. That? 1988. Okay. So the country was actually still in oh a state of gosh. emergency. Wow. Uh, so there was still apartheid. Yeah. It was still there. And then I went back in 1992, I guess. And everything had just transformed. Wow. Um yeah. Yeah, so, so those are, are like important yeah. Yeah. years. Yeah. And then it was just kind of after college, I kind of took a break and was just making work and managing a horse farm, weirdly. Um, and then I went to Chicago and I went to grad school in Chicago and there's a huge, like, like the kind of activist social practice stuff that's happening there was big even then. This is sort of pre it being so buzzy in the art world. Um, I think because there's not, there's so much less of a market there. Like people don't get so obsessed with market in Chicago, Um, at least when I was there. So I worked on some projects with people then, um, and then I moved to New York, and then I got really involved in my neighborhood doing work with, like I actually serve on the board of this community theater group that does a lot of sort of Marxist theater based on this thing called Theater of the Oppressed. Is this in Red Hook? Yeah. Yeah. Falcon Works artist group. And so initially I did that because I was kind of missing doing it. And so I started mentoring kids with them. And then I've just gotten more and more involved. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's a weavy path. And it's funny because I actually, I, I have friends who are activists Mm-hmm. And so I'm very cautious. I don't right. really like to use that word for myself mm-hmm. because I'm I'm actually way too self-motivated, <laughs> I think, to define yeah, myself yeah. that way. 
It seems you like you, I, mean? I, I think yeah. you have a, an activist approach to your art making. Yeah, that makes more sense. But. Yeah, but it sounds like it's important for you to be in the world and not just buried in your studio and oh, the making. Totally. Like you're very much. I mean, I like to come into my little cave and, you know, like of course, <laughs> re reboot, reboot, so to speak, and sort of process and think. But yeah, I would go crazy if I was just yeah. Um, you know, and it's also it's interesting. Like I'm not against getting people to help me make things, right? But I don't think I'll ever be an artist who is completely hands-off the fabrication. You know, maybe someday I'll make things that are, make some projects that are so big that I will have to have, like, real fabricators or engineers and stuff. But ma- the making part of it for me is, like, part of the th- thinking part of it. Like, when you're making, like, wh- you're like thinking. It's, it's weird, because it's like you would think when you're making big things you can't be intuitive right but actually you can be you can be yeah a lot can happen yeah because once you get your hands on that stuff and it starts becoming a thing it's going to start making its own decisions and that's I think what makes it fun I mean if it was all just like you know people make these like elaborate like engineered drawings architects drawings and then send it off to get made you've lost that the, intu- the yeah. intuitive... And also, I'm not repeating things very often. So, like, if I made something that was like, okay, I'm going to make this, a, you know, 50 times. But, that like, the first time I made it, right. I, it's like I have to have my hands It's a in process there. of discovery. And I yeah. guess maybe if there is a, an aspect of I need 10 of these... Yeah, I can see why you would want someone else to kind of take care of that. Mm -hmm. Because where's the discovery in that? Yeah, like I don't like breaking those bottles anymore. Right, right, right. That's that's an intern job. That's a good intern job. job. Okay, yeah, yeah. I was making a lot of work at the moment of the election and thinking that the election wasn't going to happen, turn out the way it did. And so, like, that solo show, Lost Your Mother, was this cast of the oldest living thing in New York City, which is this amazing tree out in Queens. And when I was making it, I was thinking, oh, this is great. When this goes up, it'll be our first woman president. It's going to be, you know, so it was like, and then it wasn't. And so it went from being this thing that was sort of like celebratory to like really sad. Yeah. I mean, I think the work became sadder, actually, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. too. I mean, everyone who went to the show said, oh, my God, this show's devastating. Really? And I was like, wow. That was an incredibly we witchy show, I think. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, in a really, really, so. In a really good way. <laughs> Starting with the it was gigantic. Like it was arranged in a circle, you know. <laughs> well, it almost was like the circle almost did evoke figures around like a yeah. fire, yeah. even yeah. though there wasn't one. Like mm-hmm. the yeah. sort of the circular people yeah. gathered maybe yeah. for a ritual. Like you're not really sure yeah. for what, mm-hmm. but like mm-hmm. um, it was beautiful. And you I made really a video of it where there was like drums. Didn't you? Or somebody oh, did. Well, sound, there's a sound right? piece. Oh, there is a sound there's piece with it. There's a sound piece with it oh, that I am... Um, I guess I didn't notice it at the There opening. was... Oh, you probably couldn't hear it. Right. There is a French scientist who has figured out how to record the sound that trees make. Um, 
And they actually, when they are in distress, uh, send electrical impulses down through their root systems and into the, you know, there's fungi that then connects roots roots. of different trees to each other. It's like tree internet. Alexander Ponomorenko figured out how to record this sound. And he had to slow it down a thousand times to be able to hear it, but it's kind of like a boom, boom, boom. Um, Anyway, I wrote him. I found some weird Gmail address and wrote him and asked him if I could use the sounds. And he was like, yes, absolutely. <laughs> and he like sent me all the files and it was amazing. Wow. But I really, I know, I was kind of, I was like, so sort of like, wow, this is cool. Science is, you know, like, I didn't think the scientists would do something with it. Like, but as other people pointed out to me, they're like, Rachel, scientists like think even like that no one is paying attention. Right. Like right. even more than artists. Right. Like scientists right. are like and really. he's probably just happy people are listening. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. So, um, yeah, so that, so I edited that sound. Um, and there was actually a little bit of um, a sound from the Women's March that was very faintly mm. in there. You had sound in another piece too that we were enthralled with called the inveterate composition, composition for, Claire. for Claire, which yeah. was this like abstract. Wells, right? Those are the first recordings, underwater recordings of humpback whales that were ever made. It was made in 1972 um, by this guy named Roger Payne. There was, a, I remember as a kid, um, we got National Geographic, and that reco- those recordings were sent. In a, on a floppy vinyl record in a National Geographic. I remember listening to it as a kid and just being like, wow, this is incredible. Yeah, so that piece is made out of two replica Humvees. Yeah. And I'll explain that. I wanted to get real Humvees, like deaccession from the military. Military does not deaccession Humvees, except to police departments. Anyway, um, I found this company in Utah that makes fake Humvee bodies so that, like, if you have your Ford F-250 and you want it to actually be a military Humvee, you order this kit and you take your truck body off and you put this fake steel and fiberglass it's crazy. It's, it's crazy. It's just the weirdest thing. I know. It's super weird. At the end of the day, I got the thing, and we cut it up. We got it in parts, and we cut it up even more and built it back there in mm-hmm. the, that alley in Industry yeah. City when it was still an alley. We saw your Kickstarter video for that. Oh! And your... The, 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 um, <laughs> you guys went into the, the archives. The drawing, the drawing that you made was very different from the final more abstracted piece we noticed. The tr- like, like the you, kind of black you, and white the, drawing? Yeah, and the drawing that you it made. It was like two Humvees sort of squashed. Under oh, yeah, you could tell that they yeah. were Humvees, sort of whereas the final piece was very abstract. I love it. I love the way it looks. It's, it's yeah. so much cool. more like sort of ad hoc, like akimbo kind of pieces and scrap metal. There's yeah. other material of scrap it's metal in there. Not much. Or is it pretty much it all Humvee body? It is pretty much body? all Humvee. There was some, I did have to use some sheet that was cut up to sort of fill in spots, but it was very like we just started on the bottom and built up. Yeah. 
and just sort of placed things in there. And it is one thing. It does not yeah. come apart. It's a monolith. Which is crazy. I don't know. This is called not knowing what you're doing. And I was like, we'll just build it. <laughs> we'll just build it. Because that'll be so much quicker than trying to figure out how yeah. to build it in pieces. We're just going to build it. Right. And we'll put some hooks on it. And we can just lift it. <laughs> right. Was it heavy? Oh, my God. It it's actually so not that heavy. But it's hot. Well, I mean, it's probably 2,500 3,000 pounds, but it's hollow. So actually, like one of the when people when it's been shipped, one of the things is you really have to be sure that it's strapped <gasps> down onto a truck because it actually it could lift. It oh, could lift oh my god, pretty what a nightmare! Easily. Wow. Um, but it does. Luckily, but like it was crazy when they came to get it to take it to. It was at Dag Hammarskjöld, across from the UN originally. And so I hired these guys to come, and um, he comes out with his tape measure, and he's like, damn, Rachel, if you'd made it like eight inches skinnier, it could go on a regular low-ride flatbed truck, and we wouldn't have to have escort vehicles. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. What do you mean? Eight inches? Can't we just, like, turn it a little bit like that? And he's like, well, uh, no. So literally to get oh, that into the oh city, there had to be a permit. We had to do it between midnight and 2 o'clock in the morning because that's what time you can go over the bridges with things oh, like that. Oh I get over there. They had to pick it up with a boom truck, put it on a flatbed that's one of those low, low ones because it's 11 feet 2 inches. Thank God I didn't go any taller than that. Because it has to fit under overpasses. Oh, like, oh, like, oh, my God. Like, there are. You just, like, we're, we're, like, on the fly making it the height you wanted. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, you know what? It's good. You can work around it, and you have, which is really cool. There's a solution for pretty much everything, right. especially oh in New York. We'll return to our conversation with Rachel Owens in a moment. You're listening to Magic Praxis, a podcast in which artists talk to artists in their studios. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on iTunes and share us with your networks so we can continue to grow our audience. And don't forget to visit our website, magicpraxis.com, where you'll find pictures of the artworks we discuss, as well as more information about each episode. And now, back to our studio visit. You said that um, you like to stitch things together that don't want to go together, which I love. And I, uh-huh. we've been sort of talking about that in terms of, like, yeah. the content and the materials. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I'm sort of thinking about it in terms of this sort of public-private dichotomy. Is there something about this thing about contradiction and things mm-hmm. that don't go together that is also sort of in the exchange of your work as it moves from say like a public place into the gallery and you know whether it's you know Zay or Smith or a museum or and then maybe a private collection it sort of transitions from being something that's very much of the world and maybe it was like you know in a public space mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To, like, how do you feel about that? You know, like, it, it is to it, something that's a little bit more mm-hmm. sort of cloistered and like tucked mm-hmm, away somewhere. Mm-hmm. It's it, this question actually. I mean, this is not the first time I've been asked this, particularly when you're talking about, you know, 
sort of being somewhat politically or socially engaged and you're criticizing, you know, capitalism and at some level you're criticizing the elite, but but the elite are actually the ones who pay for almost every bit of what we all do. But that actually extends to whether you're selling it in the gallery or not. I mean, yeah. you think about, like, where do you think the funding for Blade of Grass comes from? What's Blade of Grass? It's is that a, a piece it's you a, No, Blade of oh, Grass sorry. is a foundation that gives money to social practice artists. Okay. Oh, right. Okay. So they give, like, you get, like, a $10,000 grant and you mm-hmm. get to do your okay. project. Right. But, like, where do you think that $10,000 right. came point. from? Yeah. Right, right, right. So, like, I'm not sure that we are able, until the United States starts funding artists from taxpayer money, Mm. I actually don't think that there is a way to get Mm -hmm. out of that cycle. And and whether it's a direct sale or it's a foundation Mm -hmm. or a grant, you're still in that thing. You're still in that exchange. That's such a good point. That's one side of it. Totally. The other side of it is that um, I actually sort of enjoy that. Like, I feel like I'm doing a a little bit like embedding things. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Like, so what what do you get out of it? What do you enjoy? um, I mean, I've definitely, like, when it first started happening, I was kind of like, Ooh, I don't know how I feel about that being where it is. Sure. Anyway, there's a piece that was made about uh, it's a hedge, and it is based on the hedges in the Hamptons. There are also these hedges in Palm Beach. Any, there are all these very wealthy um, places where people have these huge hedges, which is like based on the hedges in England. So it's mm-hmm. also this sort of like Anglophilic thing that sort of you know very upper upper blue blood kind of that whole part of culture um surround their houses with so I made this chunk of a hedge um and it's but it's completely covered in broken glass all pointing out well the piece was purchased by a collector who put the piece back in the Hamptons. So. <laughs> Complex. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, and the context, like, has something to do, obviously, with how the piece is totally. seen. This particular collector does not have hedges on their property, so the piece actually just sort of sits in front of, of the house. But it's broken glass. I mean, like, the piece is dangerous, actually. I'll be real honest. Yeah, like, like your children is, shouldn't be allowed to play around it. The piece is dangerous. Wow. And, but actually, I mean, at first I was sort of like, oh, my God, this is weird. But then I was like, I actually, and, and then this is a little bit of an intuitive answer, and maybe it's the answer I want, but there's something about it that I think is okay. Like, you're placing that thing in the world and because someone bought it, it's now going to be saved. Right. So if I had, if it hadn't been sold and I had kept it, it's very possible that it would have been destroyed by now because right. I wouldn't have been able right. to Store, deal store with it. it. Right, right, To right. deal with it. Exactly. So, the, so it I, I think the idea stays intact in the object, 
even yeah. if it's in, and now it's maybe even more charred. I, I mean, it's kind yeah, of like, is it yeah. charged or is it neutered? Right, right. And that, that I don't know that I can answer. I would like I to think, think it's charged, but it might also be a little neutered. I love that. It could be a good sort of goal as a maker and an artist yeah. to sort of think about the piece as, you know, as you make it, as yeah. hopefully maintaining a charge. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. because God knows where it's going to end up. Yeah. And actually, the minute you let it go once, it's gone. Yeah. Like, I don't know what he's going to do with it. Right. right. And even if you have a deal where you get to say the first time, if it gets sold again, yeah. You, yeah, you're uh, out of it. Right. So sure. it's like, you better get it right, all right. in there from the get-go. Right. right. A lot of the work doesn't sell ever. So right. I don't know what is gonna what when right. that's gonna happen and when that's not gonna right. happen. But as I have been doing this longer and and I I know that the work some of the work does get placed. You're right. It's a cool thing. Yeah. And it's something that like going back to this social practice thing, can't do in a certain way. Because there's no object? Because there's because it, Often, because it goes away, mm-hmm. or it's right. ephemeral. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's a moment, which yeah. can be highly effective. Mm-hmm. So I guess... And but I'll, the moment passes. But the moment passes. Yeah, time. I mean, I guess, yeah. I mean, so, right. I, so that goes back to that thing of, like, how can you make these things, like, this is a, you know, like, this method is effective, for this particular project, this method is effective for this particular project. Here's another strategy. Here's another strategy. And that's interesting because that's a word activists use a lot, actually. Strategy. It's also mm. kind of corporate sounding. But really thinking about that. Like actually being engaged in thinking about what, you know, if I do this, how is this going to disrupt or aid or mm-hmm. like really thinking like in this cause and effect mm-hmm. way. Who are the artists you could say unequivocally are your heroes? Oh my God. Gordon Matta Clark. Total hero. How come? Just the kind of ability to move between all these different ways of working because the idea was always sort of at the center. So, you know, going into abandoned buildings and cutting them up or doing community gardens or he did a whole project where he bought all of these weird slivers of land from the city that were like eight inches wide by... (laughs) Oh, my God. Like, like they, nobody wanted that. Like, they were just, like, in some weird... Like, between two buildings, there'd be, like, a plot. Some strange... But then also making those big garbage bales. Like, such an amazing right. ability to move between sort of physical and conceptual and material and action and, you know, food, right, right. the restaurant. And to be, like, so outside the gallery. Totally. One of the things, like, when I think about your work is just, like, the I think about, I love, like, that they're just, like, so kind of ambitious in terms of the making. Uh-huh. Like, they involve, like, heavy things and, you know, just, like, big things and teams of people to move them. And, like, you said, like, trucks and rigging and, like, I just, like, love all that stuff. And, you know, uh-huh. Uh-huh. like, do you, you must love that stuff, too. Like, you must, like, what what is it about the making that just, like, keeps you making? 
you know, I, I just always have. Like, I think my mom got me a little, like, kid toolkit for, like, my sixth birthday. This is in the 70s when, like, a toolkit for a kid back then was, like, a real saw. <laughs> not like, a little like Fisher a, Price no, plastic like a saw. real saw that you could really cut wood with and like it's like I remember it's like my favorite thing I ever got oh my God. and I was immediately like outside like <laughs> you know? oh my god I love it um and I just always loved being in the physical world playing in the woods like all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Yeah. Um, and I was an only child, too. So I think that sets up a lots of alone time playing, yeah. like learning how to play here by yourself and um, enjoying. Like, that was how I learned to process yeah. things, you know. But I do love, I do, I do love, like, some, a forklift. and Yeah. You know, I yeah. mean, it's awesome. I don't know. You know, it's like I... I always had dogs as a kid. And, and then you worked with horses. And I worked with horses. And Who, which are big and messy and, and wonderful. You know, when I managed that farm, like I drove the tractor and I had to mow the paddocks and hook up the bush hog. And right. I mean, I just have always done that stuff. Yeah, I like that stuff. Yeah, yeah. There's been a, a thread through your life. Yeah, yeah. Working. And I kind of like working with people who do that stuff like that's what they do like I love hearing those stories when we installed that piece at Dag Hammarskjöld one of the guys who was driving one of the escort vehicles he was like oh man you won't believe what we had to do two weeks ago and I was like what and he was like we moved all these Richard Serra this is crazy story they moved a bunch of Richard Serra sculptures from Manhattan way out to Long Island somewhere okay those pieces were so big that they not only had to go on the low rider trailer but all the way to Long Island Con Edison had to at every place where there was a wire going across had to either lift lift the wire up or take it down Oh, oh, my God. God. For the truck. Wow. What kind of permits do you need for that? Apparently, you have to get one from the governor. Wow. Or the president, maybe. <laughs> is that <laughs> like, insane? Yeah, yeah, that's insane. And so, Richard Sarah. <laughs> but, I mean, it's just, it's just interesting that you bring up yeah, that, though, I because you were saying, oh, oh, I should have taken up less space. And it's like, well, actually, maybe you shouldn't have taken up less space. Yeah. Maybe you should just, maybe it's okay to say, you know what, Let's you guys can deal with this, or the world can deal yeah. with what I made. Because there's people out there making bigger things yeah. and demanding more. Yeah. And I think as yeah. women artists, yeah. oh, it yeah, doesn't totally. come naturally to really demand. No, it doesn't right. come naturally for women, I yeah. think. Yeah, no, well, right. we're... Trained to not do that. Right, mm-hmm. right. You know. Just keep yourself kind of... Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> but your work is very conceptual, I think. You yeah. Know, it's, yeah. you know, like you've, you, you plan, you have your planning yeah. phase and then you have your doing phase. Yeah. And I really love the final iteration of your sculpture more than the drawing that you made. Oh, yeah. The drawing that you made was so much more kind of... It had a whole different meaning. It was like two cars on top of each other. It looked like a junkyard. Yeah. Whereas the final thing was this beautiful kind of abstracted, confounding yeah. thing yeah. that like yeah. it became something completely different. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the tree 
project was like that too. Because I yeah. and it, I think it also comes out of not completely knowing what you're doing. I mean, yeah. this is kind of tying back in what we're talking about. But yeah. like, if you don't know exactly what you're doing, but you have an idea and you know whatever, and then you I always tell students it's like you have to provide. It's like it's like push, 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 push. You're providing everything. You're providing everything. You're providing everything. You're providing everything. And then at a certain point, the thing becomes its own thing mm, right. in the mm-hmm. world. And then you get to back off a little bit and, and let it be what it needs to right, be. Right, right. right. So it's this kind of going back and forth between intention and intuition. And that's like a, it's a dance. Right, right. Right? It's a dance. This episode of Magic Praxis was mixed by John Bender, who also does our music. Sign up for future episodes on iTunes or at magicpraxis.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Thank you.